This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, October 2, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we talk with Tara Anara candidate for Missouri State Senate District 16. But first, hey, the midterms are here. Join the Women's March for National Weekend of Action on October 7th through 9th. That's the weekend of October 7th through October 9th. Stand up and march for women's rights. The march itself will take place on October 8th at various locations all around the nation. Check out the website to locate an event near you. In Missouri, I found several marches taking place in Kansas City and Columbia and Jefferson City. Go to www.womensmarch.com for more information. And, you know, I found a great resource online from the League of Women Voters. It's called vote411.org. Check it out. They have a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues that you'll see on your ballot this November. Again, that address is vote411.org. And finally, it's an unfortunate fact of politics in this country that money injects corruption into our government. If you're as concerned about it as I am, then join Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. The amendment states simply, corporations are not people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. We last talked with Tara Anara on June 5 of this year when her campaign for the Missouri State Senate District 16 was still fairly new. Uh, Since then, we've had a state primary where she won, well, primarily because she was the only Democrat on that ticket. Also, her opponent on the Republican side of the ledger was selected by an extremely thin margin, and I'd like to touch on that a little bit during our conversation. Uh, Tara is a fifth-generation, lifelong Missourian who was raised by a family of farmers and educators, pastors, and military service members. She currently lives on the Ozark Plateau in Phelps County, Missouri. She is an educator, published poet and author, and member of the LGBTQ plus community. She's also an activist involved with direct action to build awareness about climate change, universal health care, the rights of religious minorities, racial justice, the anti-war movement, and also she advocates for pro-choice. Tara is a committee member of the Phelps County Democratic Committee, where she was a team leader for the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign and a Bernie delegate to the Missouri Democratic Convention. So, Tara, thank you for joining us again on Democracy on the Move, and welcome back. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm glad you invited me on your podcast so we can catch up. Sure, yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. Tell us about yourself and uh, why you're running. Well, I started this campaign thinking I was going to put my name on the ballot because there weren't any other Democratic choices for Missouri State Senate District 16, which is here in South Central Missouri, about five, six counties. But talking to people and then the overturning of Roe v. Wade has gotten me serious about getting elected 
and at least building a coalition of people who will either run for office or start showing up at their Democratic committee meetings. I want them to feel empowered that the government isn't something that's over them telling them what to do. I would like people to remember they are the government and I would like them to learn more about politics, not only on a local level at city hall and school boards, but how things work in Jefferson City. And the way to do that is to show up at candidate events and show up at your school boards and show up at um, party meetings each month to lift their voice and see how the gears turn and where they can help. Yeah. Well, you know, democracy is not a spectator sport, right? No. And when we're spectators, we're not out there making the decisions and deciding what's best for us and making sure it gets implemented. Yeah. By going around and talking to different people, I've learned that they're so tired of a do-nothing GOP-led legislature. Yeah, yeah, legislature that's not fixing our roads, not funding our schools, not keeping our hospitals and clinic opens. It's a lot of not and a lot of no's. And we want people who say yes to bringing our money back into our communities so we can not only survive, but thrive. Yeah. And one thing I'm concerned about is that my opponent, Senator Justin Brown, sent out mailers saying he supports Trump and he wants to finish the border wall. And I and other people are thinking, Justin, are you going to take our money to build the border wall down in Mexico when we have bridges ready to collapse? You know, we've got pipes with lead in them in our school. Under his watch, under Josh Hawley's watch, under um, Jason Smith's watch, our district, our, the broader districts for U.S. Senate, the smaller districts for Missouri House and Senate are crumbling. They've driven us into poverty, and all the data shows that. Yeah. So we're ready for people who aren't going to give our money away to consultants and big business and farm companies out of China. We want our tax money used here. Yeah. You know, you bring up a very interesting thing there regarding, you know, uh, your opponent, uh, uh, Justin Brown, uh, talking about the border wall and funding the border wall. We had a a guest on our podcast some time ago, and he's the author of the book, uh, um, How to Win a Local Election. Uh, His name escapes me, but I'll I'll give his name here shortly as soon as I find it. Mm -hmm. But um, he actually said, you know, when you're running for these offices for a state senator or a state representative or mayor or whatever, uh, people really want to deal with local issues. They don't really care so much about uh, national issues. I mean, you might as well be talking about the war in Ukraine or something like that, which is which is on everybody's minds, of course, but that's not something that really has uh, resonates in a local area. So I think, you know, if your opponent is talking about that, um, that is really not getting him any traction, I would think. 
Right. What we're seeing is propaganda. A lot of his advertisements and mailers say the crazy liberals want to take over our state. Well, if liberals are taking over Missouri, maybe people should vote for the winners, <laughs> you know, um, especially since we're the ones who want to help the people. He's also trying to scare people by saying that the Mexican cartels are coming across the border into our state. And I'm looking around going, I don't see people being killed by Mexican cartels or Mexican or, or drugs smuggled across the border. What I have seen in my own life, in my childhood, with my stepmom and dad is people addicted to pain medicine, people addicted to meth. Now we have a phenytol crisis. And that's the danger I'm seeing. And I'm seeing the danger of domestic violence. So he's wasting his time with division trying to scare people from voting Democrat when we should all be pulling together to survive the climate crisis, to survive the the um, remainder of COVID. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the uh, <clears throat> that author's name, by the way, is Jeff Ward. I just looked it up. Uh, we had him. I don't know why his name escaped my mind because he was a he was a very very um, uh, very good person, a very uh, prolific person. Writes a lot. If you ever read his book, How to Win a, a Local Election. Oh no, it, it says no. It's So You Want to Win a Local Election. That's the name of the book by Jeff Ward, um, and he talks about that. So. Uh, but let's move on here. We, we've uh, we talked earlier uh, this this year in June. I think June fifth was when the uh, podcast was released, and a lot of things have moved significantly since then. Um, we talked about your opponent there, Republican primary. Uh, he won his Republican primary, and he's the incumbent, but he barely squeaked by. And I'd really like to touch on that a little bit later on because it speaks to a lot of what's going on in politics these days. Uh, but in our last conversation, we talked about diversity and equity, uh, guns, healthcare, education, among others. Uh, since mm-hmm. then, the Missouri U.S. Senate race has come down to two candidates, Eric Schmidt on the Republican side and Trudy Bush Valentine on the Democratic side. All these campaigns are in full swing. The mudslinging has begun in earnest because now it's October. And uh, here you are <laughs> running against a Republican incumbent in a district whose boundaries have changed. Um How's your campaign feeling so far? I have loved meeting residents. We had a meet the candidate event at the Piney River Brewery in Texas County. I was supporting Randy McCallion and Bernadette, who's running for um, House. Mm-hmm. And we've had um, a candlelight visual, a vigil for uh, pro-choice where a hundred people showed up at the Phelps County Courthouse back in late June mm-hmm. into July. Okay. We're, we're planning now for a big March in Rolla on October 7th. Okay. And that's, that's and part of the really, women's March. Yes. It's part of the women's March, uh, which is taking place across the U S and then Um, individuals are organizing in their local communities. Um, We're hoping to have a women's wave and get people to the polls to not only protect our 
um, abortion access and rights. There's still a lot of misogyny going on in our world, right? So we're trying to focus on a lot of issues um, at the same time. Yeah. Now, one of my... one of my favorite things about campaigning, though, is meeting the people. I really don't like asking for money because I know how hard everyone's struggling. Yeah. Um, but they really pitched in. Like, I, w- I was able to get huge roadside signs, flyers. Um, what else? Yeah, yeah. Just all kinds of, like, campaign, campaign items. Products, yeah. 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 Collateral, I guess they call it. Is um, are you getting people to knock on doors and things like that? Well, not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, because I'm disabled, it's I've had uh, I've been in and out of the ER a few times this year, mm-hmm. and I I worry that that has me behind. But I I also like the idea of the people taking care of themselves while they're doing the work. Mm-hmm. So I recognize it was important for me to rest, get my health stable so I can keep going yeah. for the long term. And I'm hoping to get some door knockers and a text campaign going in the next few weeks. Yeah. Well, this is the this is the final stretch. We're entering into the final month of the elections and or, or of the campaign season, I should say. And um, mm-hmm. yep, this is the time. Well, um, so when you, you are talking to people, I mean, and you mentioned women's rights before, uh, which is which is huge. I mean, in light of the most recent Supreme Court ruling in that area, seems to have energized a lot of women out there. Uh, but how about other things too? I mean, there's uh, inflation seems to be a really big issue, and the Democrats they basically have the targets on their backs, right? D- despite the fact that you know a lot of the reasons for inflation, well, I guess some of them do belong to Joe Biden, but I think a majority of them don't, and su- uh, especially things like the supply side issues. But so there's inflation, there's um, taxes. There's education. I mean, what are what are people talking about out there besides uh, besides women's rights? What they're telling me is that there aren't enough jobs, and there aren't enough jobs paying a living wage. Mm-hmm. It usually takes two people in a household now to pay the electric, the rent, yeah. you know, utilities, and, and childcare and feed children. There's also not enough childcare. And they're concerned that our schools are going down to four days a week being open. So there's an extra day where people have to scramble for childcare when they need to be working. Yeah. We want to to build on that just a little bit here because I actually did some research on uh, what is going on out there in terms of uh, welfare and, and the SNAP programs. And it came across a really interesting chart. It's from an article that's like 10 years old. It was published in the Society pages. And there's this chart. It looks like a big X on the chart, right? And so there has two lines in it. One of them is sloping down to the right, and one of them is sloping up to the right. And the one that's going down is the uh, a number of SNAP households with children um, that uh, of, of parents that do not have any income. So that was, uh, and this goes from like 1990 to like, 
2012, that it was published in 2012. In 1990, 60% of the recipients were uh, from uh, uh, families where the adults did not have a job. That's been sloping down to the right, and it's kind of a good thing. It's 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 saying that you know it ended up at like 13.2 percent in like 2012, and that says basically that people uh, who are on the SNAP program are getting jobs, and so the the percentage of people receiving SNAP is uh, is less for the for the people who have jobs. But the one that's disturbing me is that there's another line that slopes up toward the right, and it starts off at about 25 percent back in 1990, and that is the number or the percentage of SNAP recipients that have a working adult, one or more working adult in the family, but are still receiving SNAP benefits because of they're still unable to make their bills. And that's sloping up to the right where, where it ended up at about almost 50% at uh, 2012. And this is like 10 years ago. And so the crossover point wow. actually occurred like right around the year 1999, where uh, where they crossed over. And so that tells me that even though, you know, the, the allegation from some people, from their especially the hyper-conservatives out there, the allegations are that while they're get lazy, they're not working. Yeah, go out and get a job. Well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really uh, conform to reality these days that uh, many of these people, if not most, the vast majority, do have jobs but they're still unable to make their bills and raise their children. This is an extremely disturbing development in our society. So what I've learned over the past 20 years, and that's a little less than half my life, I'm 46. Mm -hmm. The GOP, especially in Missouri, is not the government of the people. They're benefiting corporations. Just like now in our legislature, the House tried to pass a plan to phase out corporate taxes. Yeah. And helping people means making sure they have food, water, power, shelter, clothing, access to education and access to healthcare. Yeah, we're we're just seeing our infrastructure fall apart why they keep telling the the struggling working class to work more and and reach for something that's not achievable on our own it it takes oh and while we're watching the corporations raise prices pay people paltry wages the companies in Missouri and across the U.S. have brought in billions and billions during the pandemic right. on the backs of the working class. So we deserve to have some of that given back to the communities where these companies are operating in. Yeah. Well, they're, when you have a corporation in an area, they have to be good citizens because a lot of times these corporate, not a lot of times, every time these corporations are really taking advantage of uh, public utilities, right? They're they're consuming electricity, they're uh, putting additional wear and tear in the roads, the bridges, and so on, um, keeping the lights on, and and just run, just doing the stuff that corporations do. But it does put a stress on the uh, on the society. And, you know, you talk about phasing out corporate taxes. 
I keep getting into this argument with people that say, you know, that they still they still believe in this um, this trickle down economics model that the more money you give the corporations, the more money you give the rich people, uh, the more it's going to benefit the poor people. (laughs) And like, I mean, that's really what it boils down to. And it's like on the surface, it doesn't make sense. And when you dig in deeper, it still doesn't make sense to me. No, you you can't expect greedy people to share. You have to have laws and regulations in place that force them to be a part of the community. Yeah, yeah, I I believe that strongly. And look at the the 2017 tax breaks when uh, the idea there was to uh, would corporations reinvest that that extra money that they get from the tax breaks into their communities. And a lot of them shook their heads. Yes, of course they do, because they know they're going to get more money. But the reality is that many of them turned around and bought their own stock, which did what? It raised their stock prices and gave their managing partner or the the management team a big bonus. So so that money found its way into individual people's pockets. It didn't find its way into the mass, uh, into the people in general. It was a big griff and just like all the fundraising for the border wall was a griff and went into the pockets of Trump and his buddies. We're seeing that same kind of scam across our state. And I think people are really tired of it now. I, I talk to people who are concerned about, um, young people not getting a good education in the defunded schools and then moving out of the area. Um, Did you know that actually, according to MIT, our wages are supposed to be $22 an hour to be able to cover all of our expenses. And I think the state wage right now is only 12. Yeah, I think they voted on that recently. It's going to increase over a period of time. I forgot what the numbers are, but yeah, that's that's the that's that's pretty much it. It's half, (laughs) what a little bit, little bit more than half of what's needed. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about how increasing wages would increase prices and put small businesses um, out of business, out of operation. Yeah. But I think there are some regulations in place about what the wage has to be, um, that the wage is determined by how many people are employed. I'm not 100% sure on that, but. I always take the extreme, and and this actually kind of goes back to Henry Ford, what Henry Ford said, and and the extreme is that if you you don't pay your, I mean, a, a corporation would like to not pay their people anything, you know, and get, an infinite supply of labor for zero cost. And if you scale that out, then what happens? The economy crashes and nobody can afford to buy the stuff that the corporation is making. And I think that's what Henry Ford had said at one point. I, I'm, he's not a necessarily a big hero of mine, but at one point uh, he said something to the effect that I want to I want to build a car that's cheap enough that people who work for me can buy one. And right. So um, how about uh, one of my pet peeves here in Missouri, and um, because I live in Missouri, but if I lived in Iowa, I'd have an even bigger problem with, and that's uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFO as they call them. I call them factory farms. Uh, Back in 2019, the legislature passed SB 391, 
which essentially consolidated control and monitoring of CAFOs into the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services instead of into the local communities, like, you know, your local county health department. Um, is, are people in your district talking about this at all? Is this, an, is this becoming an issue in your district? I think, I think so, because we're worried about our water and wells becoming contaminated mm-hmm. because of the lagoons and the large pig farming operations and just the amount of waste these farms make where they keep animals packed in tight and basically feed them and then the waste runs out into um our wells and our waterways i also think though people are very concerned about farmland being sold to china Mm -hmm. and a lot of those um breeding and feeding farms are owned by chinese company companies we've seen during the pandemic how fragile our shipping systems are and how we can we can our supply lines i mean no. So why are we allowing our resources, our food to be produced by foreign companies when we could be having um, more control over the production and distribution of food? Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm concerned that actually that the Missouri Farm Bureau, Bureau endorses Justin Brown and our Attorney General Eric Smith because they were part of the legislature when a lot of our land, our farmland was being sold to people overseas. And yet Justin Brown is out there getting so many photo ops with his tractors. He does own some (laughs) farmland. That's funny because I was just thinking Um, I had that image in my mind of seeing a picture of him on a a tractor. (laughs) And then you mentioned it. (laughs) Um, I actually met him at the Phelps County Focus Meet the Candidate event where we all took turn answer, turns answering questions. Mm-hmm. And at the time we were going through a huge heat wave. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how one of the tractors overheated um, and sparked and caused a big fire at one of his hay fields. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, and here you are a climate denier yeah but you've experienced the effects of extreme heat on your farm other farmers have got to be dealing with that too yeah and i i know our governor declared a state of emergency during um the drought we had recently but a state of emergency is on climate change is like a putting a band-aid on a, a broken flood wall. Yeah. We have to have the rebuilding of our infrastructure to get ready for the stronger storms that are going to come in, like we saw in St. Louis, where we're going through a drought, yet they had a huge flash flood. Yeah. We've got to be keeping our water safe, as we mentioned with the corporate farms. Yeah. And we could be making people's homes more energy efficient and transitioning to solar in our public housing 
which would cut back on people's utility bills and cut back on our carbon emissions. So there's just a lot that people like uh, Justin Brown and Jason Smith, who say they're farmers, are actually really ignoring what's happening to our farms here. Yeah, and just for reference purposes, Jason Smith is the U.S. representative for District 8 of Missouri, which is the south uh, southeast side of Missouri, including the boot heel, which includes the area that yeah. you're living in right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, all these um, districts meld into each other. Um, so I yeah. guess what I'm trying to say is members of the Republican Party are ignoring what's happening locally and they're focusing on just getting people scared and of liberals and focusing on, oh, they're coming to take your money by raising taxes instead of actually listening to what we need. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that you brought up your opponent um, and and um, you want to talk to him, Justin Brown, I alluded to it earlier, I wanted to talk about uh, your opponent, Justin Brown, who is the incumbent mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing to me because I've, I've been looking at his Facebook page and uh, let's talk about the primary, for example, where he ran against uh, uh, Susie Pollack. And if you look at 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 uh, Justin at Justin Brown, he's I would think closer to the center in terms of being a Republican. I mean, he he has all the all the endorsement of the NRA and and things like that, which which traditional Republicans like to get. And he Farm talks Bureau, about yeah. Farm Bureau, right? And he talks about the radicalist, uh, leftist, whatever that means. Um, and yet here he is, you know, he's the incumbent and he almost lost his uh, primary to Susie Pollack in out of like 21,572 votes cast. He, uh, he won by only 384 votes. And if you look at, at, uh, at his opponent, which was Susie Pollack, um, she, to say the least, she, uh, she leans pretty far into extremist territory. And I, the, I think she would be called a MAGA Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and I, I would like to read a, a little bit of her Facebook page right here, which just, just blew me away. Uh, this was the day before the election, the primary election. She said, I quote, I am looking for prayer warriors interested in going to their voting precinct before the polls open tomorrow at 6 a.m. to pray a hedge of protection around the voting place to bind Satan that there would be no confusion or illegal activity. Oh my gosh! To, to pray for, <laughs> to pray for clar- clarity of mind for each voter, remembering only truth that biblical Christians should would be elected and those who support unbiblical values be removed. And she goes on to say that uh, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And, you know, I about fell out of my chair when I read this, not because I'm surprised by it, but just the brazen amount mm-hmm. of, of uh, what would I say, shameless amount of Christian nationalism there is in there, which in my mind exactly. is almost the same as fascism. And here we are. She almost made it. I mean, like 384 votes. She almost got there against an incumbent. Right. So what does this say about right. your district, though? I mean, is, is this, this is a... This seems to resonate with a lot of people in your district. Oh, where to start? First, I find it fascinating that she uses the words 
hedge of protection because this goes back to Ozark folk mysticism magic. Hmm. Because the idea of having a hedgerow made out of different small trees, brambles, that kind of thing to put around your house, around your property, an actual physical thing. Sometimes it could be berries, you know, that you can eat, plants you can use. Mm-hmm. But in Ozark folk magic, which I'm very fascinated by because my family's been here for generations, mm-hmm. is you can have a prayer hedge of protection right? Not just a physical one. So I find that fascinating. And I've always enjoyed how Celtic culture, which followed a lot of the settlers here from uh, Wales, Scotland, mm-hmm. Ireland, into the Carolinas, into Kentucky and the Appalachia, Appala- Appalachians, mm-hmm. and then here into the Ozarks. But you've here in America, it's unique because you start to get this white supremacy blended with that that culture, right? And the point of white supremacy is power over others, mm-hmm. power over women, power over minor- minorities. And unfortunately, we have a lot of churches in my district who break the nonprofit tax codes and preach from the pulpit that people need to be voting for Republicans. One thing that Bernadette and uh, Bethany Mann and I are doing is we're going to be holding a women's lunch in uh, Mary's County because we found out from locals that there are husbands who tell their wives how to vote Mm -hmm. and they'll do this because they're taught from birth on that the power structure goes god pastor husband right and so that same structure is in the household husband wife children and actually in rural missouri a lot of the polling places are open tables where people sit together and vote. We don't necessarily have the closed off polling booths mm-hmm. um, where people can vote privately. So, so the husbands have, are looking over their wives. Yeah. yeah, literally yeah. we'll be sitting there with her at the table, mm-hmm. making sure she votes the right way of the congregation. Wow. And this is the power of Christian nationalism in our region. We have a lot of work to do. I may not win this election, mm-hmm. but we're working. We have a strong group of female candidates here working together to liberate the women of our area. And that's hard to do. How do you convince people they're worthy of making their own decisions that their body is theirs, you know? Yeah, that's that's tough. I can imagine, yeah. Right. So we almost feel like um, the suffragettes, (laughs) you know, who would, who worked hard to get voting out of the local bars 
um, which I found interesting in history. The men didn't want women to vote because they didn't want the women coming into the bars. I mean, people would get drunk and fight with each other about how they should vote. And it's it's fascinating that the suffragettes had to step up to say, no, we need public polling places. We need the right to vote. And we're kind of still doing that now where women candidates are saying, hey, we need more private voting, even in these public polls. We need to talk to women, um, help help them break away from misogyny yeah. and the patriarchy so that we can fight fascism. Yeah. But it seems like it, there's, I mean, going back to uh, Susie Pollock's Facebook page, it almost sounds like, you know, she's, there, I don't know if it's a if it's a uh, Stockholm syndrome thing or what, but it seems like a lot of a lot of women out there are also part of this. Uh, locally here where I live mm-hmm. is Mary Elizabeth Coleman, who is notorious for uh, voting against uh, women's rights in many cases, especially when it comes to abortion, to the point where she's made national news because she wants to uh, enforce Missouri's anti-abortion laws in other states. So when a woman, if, right. if a woman should go to a different state, um, who knows? She, maybe she has a miscarriage or something I mean, tragic like that. Comes back to Missouri and then suddenly she's being persecuted for for something that happened outside. You know, and it, there's, I mean, this is it's just amazing to me that you get a lot of women in this situation. But <clears throat> you talk about Randy McCallion. I wanted to clarify to our listening audience that Randy McCallion is actually running against. Jason Smith uh, for the U.S. Congress position in the Eighth District of Missouri, um, but you get women. She's a great like, friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, she's she's been on the show before too, and so is Bethany Mann. Uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of women on this show recently who are getting into politics, um, and a majority, I would say, a majority of people, of politicians I talk to, are women these days because it seems like they're. Yes. Uh, they're getting fed up and they're stepping up and, and trying to make a difference. <laughs> but I can see an uphill battle where you are right now because they're, uh, you, you know, I often said if you throw a dart at the, at the exact center of the map of the United States, it would probably land, if not in your district, very, very close to your district um, because, you know, that, that is the central part of America there. It's, it's a real slice of the heartland. And yet you still have these situations where women feel so beholden to the, to the patriarchy that's out there, uh, to the point of actually advocating against themselves in many cases. Right. And so what we want to do is to have women who believe in our mental, spiritual, and physical autonomy in office so that at least there won't be legislation holding us down mm-hmm. such as the the total abortion ban yeah. who knows what else they'll pass next because if we're not fighting the legislature we can hopefully come together as communities to lift up other women yeah And what I hate also, another reason I would like to see Missouri go blue and have a turnover is we could tamper down 
the rhetoric of that liberals are evil, mm -hmm. liberals are grooming our children. Um, that I've even heard the idea. Okay, so I was in West Plains at a pro-choice rally. It was small. Mm -hmm. But we had a man drive up, and he was convinced that in New York, a woman could give birth, and then legally the doctor could kill the baby. No, no. And we're, we're well, like... Ann Wagner, who's the uh, current U.S. representative of Second District, writes about this a lot on her Twitter feed. She says she calls a post-birth abortion or something like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? This That's infanticide. That's murder. <laughs> I don't... And we're like, look, the nurses wouldn't let someone get away with that. The hospital board's not going to let someone get away with that. The police. <laughs> I've heard... You know, right? Yeah. And I've heard from people that Okay, because um, of the f Christian nationalism, people have a lot of fear of going to hell and the devil. Mm -hmm. And one of the rumors that goes around is that abortions are a satanic ritual, mm. believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And that... Wow. How do you fight it's... that? Right. No. It, it's a cult mentality. It, really it is. is. It's a it's a cult and I'm thinking maybe we're going to have to have more people trained on getting people out. Um, I respect all religions. I do. Mm -hmm. I, I know there are beautiful aspects to Islam, to Christianity, to Wicca, to the goddess culture, to, to Jewish traditions. But when you instill so much fear in people that they believe doctors are doing satanic rituals in their offices, that's that's not sane. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it leaves me speechless as well. You know, I, and the only way I can explain it is is to use the word cult. Uh, it applies to a lot of, in fact, I had a, a podcast about this several weeks ago. I talked about the cult of Trump in, mm. in, in any sort of cult, you, um, you have a set of beliefs that simply cannot be challenged. And the, the, uh, the prep, the, um, the premise is that you go into this with this belief. And so anything that runs counter to that belief is explained away with, with, uh, conspiracy theories uh, with saying that your opponent is lying, uh, you know, and and so you can explain away anything that doesn't fit into your narrow view, and that that is that is the cult mentality. And that I, I I'm not a psychologist. I don't know how to break through something like that, um, but it uh, I'm sure there are ways of breaking through these cult mentalities. And I think if there is a way, it's probably something similar to what you are doing right now, which is continuing to hammer people with the facts, give them the options, give them another view of a different way to go. Um, you know, some people you're definitely not going to convince, uh, but maybe right. some people you can sort of chip away at it and say, you know, this isn't the way things are. There is something else. I want to tie in this idea of Christian nationalism and, and cult-like mentality to agape mm -hmm. and the 
other unregulated um, religious boarding schools in our state. Yeah, just, so, just as background, Agape is a religious boarding school for young men out in Cedar County, I believe it is. And they have been accused uh, by multiple ex-students of, yes, of, um, of beating children, sexually abusing them, and um, all sorts of horrible things that, that are happening out there. And the state has been very slow to shut down this particular school. But it isn't confined to this particular school. There are other schools in that area exactly. that are having the same problems. So, so go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, want, I did want to provide that background. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So luckily, they've lost most of their accreditation. Agape has lost most of its accreditation from other um, organizations, and I can't remember exactly mm -hmm. what they're called. And a lot of the girls' schools that were run the same way have been closed. I've talked to Agape survivors, um, such as Richard Buckland, Mm -hmm. And I've talked to M. Adams, who survived Bethesda in Mississippi. These children are forced into slave labor situations where they have to work long hours on other people's farms. They work long hours in construction. And the school gets money from parents paying tuition. And from the people, they they get paid from these other people who use the children as labor. Um, I I talked to a young man in Texas County recently, who was very brave in sharing what he went through. He often got a dollar or a few cents a day while he was in the school, and. Mm. Wow. He, they, they would lock children in their rooms or restrain them if they disobeyed. Mm -hmm. And then you couldn't, you couldn't do your chores or your slave labor, basically, and you wouldn't get money. And um, this man, well, he's a man now, when he got out, he, after being there like four years, he had like $400. And he just spent it all on food. Probably didn't end up with an education either. No, exactly. Um, often the children are forced to memorize Bible verses, mm -hmm. memorize chapters of the Bible. Um, M told me they had to often stand in line and recite the book of, of um, John, first book of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard but uh, it's heartbreaking really heartbreaking so what these places are doing they're generating traumatized scared people they're generating more people who might fall prey to other abusers mm -hmm. and they're run by churches yeah of all things Run by churches, yeah. But right. that, that's that's part of that uh, that mentality that that gets you know that gets into people the the cult mentality. That's where it comes right. from. Yeah. So we need to shut down these centers of uh, income. Yeah. And these trauma centers to help free people. I 
I hope everyone will support Sarah Unsicker's um, legislation that she is trying to pass during the tax session right now to get these schools fully regulated. Yeah. But that's um, hard to do because these are actually private institutions though, right? I mean, they're, they're not state run, so they don't have state accreditation, but that, um, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, defending the state at all in this case. Cause I think yeah. <laughs> people like Eric Schmidt in my mind, who is the current attorney general who's running for Senator has completely ignored this situation almost from the very beginning. Uh, he's, he's paying some lip service to it now because he's getting a lot of heat for ignoring it. Uh, but they're, yes. they're not accredited by the state. So what, what is, what options does the state have in this situation? Is it just enforcing laws against child labor and things like that? Well, there are already, yeah, enforcing those labors. Now, there are states that even though they have religious schools, they still have to be regulated. So when a lot of these places got closed down, like Bethesda, Mississippi, or schools in Washington, mm-hmm. a lot of those owners came to Missouri. They fled to Missouri because we weren't regulating private religious schools. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. So what, yeah. So what Sarah wants to do is, I believe her legislation, her proposed legislation is saying it doesn't matter if you're a religious private school, you're going to get regulated for the safety of children. Yeah, I see. Wow. We need that. Yeah, absolutely. We need that. That is, that is amazing. Yeah, Robert Buckland is a person I've, I've been in touch with. I, I keep trying to get uh, coordinated our, our schedules to get him on the air here as well. He's an ex-student of the Agape Boarding School, and he's one of the leading voices uh, that's really been uh, a thorn in Eric Schmidt's side in terms of you know getting something done about this. And it, um, uh, yeah, it's it's in. It, actually, I didn't know anything about it until he emailed me one day and said, "How would you like to do a story about agape?" So I had to, like run in and, and do all this research, and and as I'm doing my research, I'm like, "This is happening here in the United States, here in my state, Missouri." I, I you yes. know, this is unbelievable. He, I found out from Robert, and he and the other. A lot of um, survivors of those schools are trying to take down what's called the troubled teen industry. It's these boarding places that say, hey, pay us tuition. We'll take your child that is somehow dysfunctional or causing you problems. Maybe they have ADHD. Maybe, you know, they have other psychiatric issues. And we're going to rehabilitate them for you. Yeah. But unfortunately, teens with mental disabilities or or um, learning disabilities are easily manipulated into being a victim. Yeah. So these children aren't getting educated. They're not getting counseling. They're not getting the love and support they need. They're just being abused, so they'll be slave labor. And yeah. actually, it was... The Department of Justice and Polaris, Polaris is a trafficking, anti-trafficking group Mm -hmm. who found out about a boy who had been kidnapped from California and dragged 
to Agape. And thanks to Robert and other survivors, candidates like me, Bernadette, um, Randy, we're being informed and we're stepping up and being their advocates. And then we told Trudy Bush Valentine about it and she's heard from survivors. So Democrats are really trying to protect the children in this state. And because campaigns started picking up this message that we need to stop the troubled teen industry in Missouri and close Agape, Eric decide Eric Smith, our attorney general, decided, you know, maybe he will stop for a while suing our public schools over masks and actually file a brief to yeah. get it closed. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think a Republican a Republican um, in the General Assembly just stood up recently and said they need the Department of Justice to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I was grateful for that. Yeah. It's not a Republican thing. I don't want to make that straight. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah, it's, it's not a Republican thing. I think it's just a thing that has been uh, ignored and, uh, and disregarded by, I would think, the, the more extremist uh, MAGA Republicans that really don't see a problem. Uh, well, I guess maybe they see the problem, but there are other political considerations to make. For example, from what I understand of the Agape boarding school situation, um, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I'm sure I didn't get this right, but the mm. judge that was overseeing the, uh, the handling of this case was actually on the board of the of the of the uh, law firm that was representing Agape at one point, so there's like this old boys network that kicks in and protects exactly. them. Exactly, Judge Mutant he founded the law firm that is representing Agape. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now he's and the judge. Often, <laughs> yes, I often wonder if Eric Smith and ignored what was going on at Agape and other boarding schools because of the push to privatize public education in our state. And when you're, that would look very bad (laughs) seeing a private school being so horrendous. How could people trust other private schools, you know, not to be the same way. And I wonder too, You know, we hear a lot about how people need choice and can use the vouchers to go to these charter schools. But the charter schools are going to build in places like Kansas City and St. Louis where their employees are going to have opportunities and people can pay those high tuition rates. Yeah. So where does that leave people in my community? Right. It takes money out of the out of the state monies that are set aside for public schools and puts them into these private schools. And, you know, I, I, I do agree that some of these charter schools aren't so bad, but the concept is pretty bad because basically you, you're, you're taking public money and putting into a private institution and uh, that's run by a charter in the case of charter schools, but run by uh, whatever board, uh, like in a parochial school, whatever board exists for that, you don't know where that money's going. And, and, you know, you talk about parents having control over 
their children's education, that actually makes it even more difficult to have control if it's a charter school or if it's some sort of, you know, uh, religious-based school. Um, right. You have even less of a voice. And I think what people don't realize with public schools is that public schools have been built, they've been around for like 200 years now, and they have been built <laughs> exactly. for the purpose. Yes. Yeah, they've been built to, to be very democratic at heart because uh, the school board is elected by the people. Uh, the people have the right to see what decisions the school board is making. Uh, I've been to a number of school board meetings uh, long ago when I lived in California because my son was going to school out there in high school and I went to a couple of board meetings. Hardly anybody shows up, right? There's a huge auditorium and like maybe three people sitting out there in the audience. And so, you know, it's, but but the thing is it's there, you know, it's there if people, if, if parents are getting involved and they want to have some sort of say over their children's education, that already exists. And when you throw the money over the wall into like, you know, like a private school or, or a charter school, um, you get less control over it. So, you know, I got news for folks. You're, you're giving away your money and getting less control, in my opinion. And as someone who comes from a family of educators, and my mom was a third grade teacher for about 20 years, for about eight years, I worked in publication uh, public education as a substitute paraprofessional. So I worked with children in special ed classes. Mm -hmm. All Everything they learn is public knowledge. Parents yeah. get to look at the kids' homework. They can come in. They can talk to the teachers. They can talk to the principal. A lot of lessons have to already be put online. Yeah. So I don't understand these fear-mongering well, I do. So there's these fear mongering rumors that that there are progressive or liberal teachers trying to corrupt our youth. Yeah. And that's a tactic to close our schools and get all the money put into private education. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's I think that's I mean, it's it's transparently obvious if you look into this for any short period of time at all. That's that's the whole overall goal. Um, but I agree with you. It's actually very transparent. And I would love to see more parents get involved with the schools because maybe we'd have more people supporting our teachers and saying, yeah, they need to be paid better. And, and why are we as parents and why are the teachers having to foot the bill for the supplies oh, yeah. when our schools could be funded? When, I know now it's so expensive to get your kids supplies because in the older grades, they often need like SD cards, um, headphones, that yeah. kind of thing when they go into class because they're, because tech is so much a part of learning now. Yeah. And I think what would be great is at the start of every school year, people could send their kids to school, kids shows up at the class and the teacher is passing out all their supplies for the year. That's something I would like to see in my district. Yeah. And I would like to see um, instead of each district paying for their schools, because we have a lower income counties here. It's almost like they're being punished, right? Mm -hmm. So I would love in Missouri to see the taxes being um, the taxes that go toward education kind of come together as a pool for the state and distributed based on the student population in our schools, in our public schools. Yeah. Well, there, there is a formula for that in Missouri, but <clears throat> I think it actually needs to be modified quite a bit. 
I do really want to get moving on here because uh, we're going to have to wrap this up soon. But I, I did want to say one thing uh, before we wrap this up. And I was very surprised last Wednesday when I joined this meeting uh, regarding this upcoming election. There's going to be an issue on the election that, that votes whether or not we're going to have another constitutional convention in Missouri. I'm kind of new to this whole topic, but it seems very intriguing to me. In fact, next week we're going to have uh, Robin Kuhlman, who is a, I believe she's an associate, associate, excuse me, associate professor of poli science at Central Missouri State University. I hope I got that right. But she's going to be coming on to the show next week to talk about a possible constitutional convention in Missouri. And apparently this thing comes up every 20 years in Missouri. They have to put it on the on the ballot and say, it says basically, do you want to have another constitutional convention? And I've since learned that there's a lot of states that do this. There are 44 states out there total that do something like this. Um, so if we if we vote to have a constitutional convention, that basically means that a group of delegates get together, get to get a get a do over, right, a, a mulligan, if you will, to uh, to redo the Constitution, either add amendments to it or or rewrite the whole thing if they want to. Hardly ever happens, though, historically, not only in Missouri. I think it's happened in 1946 or something like that in Missouri. Um, it hardly ever happens to any state, even though it does come up. Um, what do you, in, in, anyways, to get long story short here, it's already a long yeah. story, but, but you were in the meeting on Wednesday, and I thought, wow, there's Tara. She's actually interested, interested in this as well. Um what is your opinion about having a possible convention, uh, constitutional convention in Missouri? You know, that is a very interesting question. And a lot of concern I've heard um, at uh, Democratic committee meetings and among voters is they would be concerned about um, fascists or, or white Christian nationalists somehow hijacking the meeting mm -hmm. and taking away more of our civil liberties. Yeah. And I was too, until um, as a speaker, uh, Winston Apple explained it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And it really taught me how uninformed, I hate to admit it, but well, you and me both how had uninformed the same experience. I, yeah. Yeah, how uninformed I was about the inner workings of government, um, which is one reason I'm running, too. I wanted to learn more. Mm -hmm. But basically, there's going each party, if I recall, can nominate the same amount of people to be a part of this convention. Mm -hmm. And then citizens in each Senate district can nominate members at large yeah. and none of these people are actually going to be elected officials members at large or the nominated people by the parties mm -hmm. they have to be citizens and th then i was i thought wow there could be some potential there yeah. uh, for change um right because it sounds like it would be pretty pretty balanced it does, um, yeah, according to what you're alluding to there is that there are a number of delegates that come from each senatorial district and each within each senator district, they, they can each party within each district can nominate one person. So 
mathematically, I think, insofar as those delegates are concerned, you'd end up with, a, with an even split between Democrats and Republicans. Um, let's face it, there's other right. parties in Missouri, but I, I don't think that they would get that many uh, votes. So, uh, But there are those 15 at-large members there that concerns me because those would be the tiebreakers, and they could be heavily influenced by um, organizations that have a vested interest in seeing the Constitution swing one way or the other. Uh, that does seem like a like a interesting opportunity to do things like ranked choice voting, uh, open primaries, uh, you know, multi-winter districts, uh, you know, to nullify a lot of the adverse effects that the legislature has had over this, over this state over the last 20 years or so, um, and, and women's rights included into that whole, into that whole equation there. So there's a right. pretty good upside, but I, I still fear the downside of this thing myself. <laughs> It it sounds very, I would love for there to be a way where the people could unite and then codify our rights to access abortion, um, our rights to marry whoever we love, um, to protect the rights of the LGBTQIA plus community, mm-hmm. which I'm a member of. I just... As, as broken as our political system is in Missouri right now, I'm not so sure we have time to really nominate and get people elected who would care about people's rights. I'm concerned about, like you said, how many people voted for Susie Pollock over Justin Brown and wanted yeah. that radical ideology. I'm worried that we have a lot more work to do in our state before we want to, I mean, before we can come together as a unified force and, and truly have a democratic government here. Yeah. Well, that's, that's well put. I like, I like the way you put that. That, uh, um, yeah, it uh, resonates with me as well. Uh, we do have to wrap this up, though. I do have um, one last question for you. Is uh, Where can people go to learn more about you and your campaign for the State Senate District 16? Oh, yay. Uh, Tara, T-A-R-A, Anura, A-N-U-R-A, dot com. Tara, Anura, dot com. Okay. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And I look forward to hearing from people. And um, we're going to be having some events coming up so people can meet me at the Fall Harvest Festival in Hartville, Hartsville, which is in Wright County. And we have, of course, the Women's March coming up on October 7th. We're gathering at the Rolla City Hall and we're going to march down to Highway 63. So that'll be a chance to meet me and stand up for our rights together. Wonderful. Well, we've been uh, talking with Tara Anra, educator, published poet, author, and candidate for the Missouri State Senate District 16. Tara, thank you again for joining us on Democracy on the Move. We love having you here. And uh, good luck in your campaign. Thank you. And thank you for your time, Dan. 
You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.